Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We believe that the gospel really is good news, that the blood of Jesus worked, and that Jesus meant it when he said, it is finished. In Christ, we are dead to sin and alive to God, forgiven and free, clean and close, holy and beloved, blessed and made new. If God is doing something special in your life, we would love for you to tell us about it. You can simply email us at info at lifejourneyva.com. One of the reasons we are able to provide these weekly podcasts is because of the generosity of people like you. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. We've been dealing with hurts that we all go through, hurts like uh, we talked last week about being rejected, rejection, and how the, the healing reality of what Jesus has done in accepting us, man, it heals the, the hurt of rejection. We've talked about the hurt of loneliness, of, of inadequacy, of lingering past, and today we're going to talk about the real-life hurt of self-worth, self-worth. And the reason that we're doing this is because each one of us, no matter who you are, we all have hurts in this life, in this world. And the last thing that I want as one of the elders here at Life Journey to do is for us to grow so enamored with the gospel of how powerful it is and how awesome it is and think that it's just some sort of ticket for tomorrow, you know, for when we croak. My desire is to make sure that we see that what Jesus has done in the finished work of Christ actually floods healing into every single crack in life today that hurts. We have this phrase we've been throwing around. It just says, hurt people, hurt people. And I think we know what that means. We've been talking about it for a while. When you're hurting, you tend to hurt others. It's not fun. You don't want to, but it, it happens. And so we want to find true. We want to find true healing in life's hurt. So we're going to talk about self-worth today. Uh, here's a, a definition. Uh, it's in your Bible notes. But self-worth, it's the sense of one's own value or worth as a person. Now, I was told that you're never supposed to use the word you're defining in the definition. That's the dictionary's definition. Okay, so get on them, not on me. So it's, it's the way in which we, we develop our value. How do we develop our value, our sense of value as an individual? Typically, when we think of self-worth, Typically, we think of those who have who struggle with a very low self-worth. You know how teenagers, I was one, I think we all were one at some point in time, teenagers were, well, they'll end up sacrificing so much of what they know is right, their, their values, in order to be accepted into a group of people because they are searching for worth. As a youth minister for 10 years before we moved here to Start Life Journey, I can't tell you the number of teenage girls who ended up doing things that they would never have dreamt of doing in a million years in order to be someone's girlfriend because their worth came from being some boy's girlfriend. And so they would say what they needed to say in order for this girl to do things that she would never wish to do in order to have value that she thought she didn't have. So typically, when we think of self-worth, we think of people with low self. We think of people who, you know, they hurt themselves because they think they have no value, maybe even committing suicide because they think they have no value. But self-worth problems aren't just about those who have low self-worth. 
There's a whole other end of that spectrum of people who have extremely high inflated self-worth. And probably just then, most all of us just thought of somebody that we know. And uh, yeah, hopefully it wasn't me. Probably was. I don't know. But, but we think of people, they're, they're, we would label them as arrogant, right? As, as, as egotistical, as narcissistic. Here's the bottom line. Unhealthy self-worth comes in all sorts of varieties. It comes in us seeing that we, thinking that we have no value intrinsically, or also thinking we have big, all this value that we actually may not have. And so the issue is the same. The, the, the loner who is, who is struggling through life, depressed, and seeking perhaps even to end their own life is dealing actually with the same thing that that external, you know, uh, boastful, uh, the life of the party, having to do all the things in order to get people to value them is struggling with. They're both struggling with the source of where they find their value. The loner thinks they have none because of the lack of accomplishments, the, 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 the egotistical person thinks they have a great high uh, self-value because of all of their accomplishments. But the struggle is the same. In fact, there was a study by the University of Michigan that we have up on the screen, at least a summary of it, that, that they did a, a survey of college students at the university. Is it up on the screen? Maybe? Hopefully? If not, I'll read it here. One study at the University of Michigan found that college students who base their self-worth on external sources. Okay, so, so this could be anybody who bases their, their value on external sources, including academic performance, appearance, and approval from others, reported more stress, more anger, more academic problems, and more relational, relationship conflicts. They also, as if that's not enough, they also had higher level of alcohol and drug use as well as, more, as well as more symptoms of eating disorders. And I don't care who you are in this room, you probably have fallen somewhere in that description because we seek our value based on external sources. Now, maybe not extreme on this side of egotistical boastful, and maybe not extreme on this other side of I think I'm just going to end my life, but we've all been somewhere on that spectrum. But the study goes on to say that the same study found that students who base their self-worth, this is the next screen, on internal sources. Not, now, this isn't church. This isn't the Bible. This is the University of Michigan who based their self-worth on internal sources, not only felt better, but they received higher grades and were less likely to use drugs and alcohol or develop eating disorders. To which we would all say, well, yeah, duh. But what we have is an entire culture, whether it's secular or Christian, who is seeking to establish our worth by external sources, what other people think about us, or even worse, what we think someone else thinks about us, rather than what Jesus actually says about us. And so we could continue through life if we want, continually hurting, continually swaying back and forth in this never-ending external influences, external sources of trying to find our value, or we could stop that rat race and just see what our true value actually is. By the way, the link to that study is in the Bible app if you'd like to read the full study. And this is how we're going to 
look at this the rest of our time this morning. In the new covenant, God has created you with such value that, that, that this world could never, ever compete with. And it's no longer based upon what you do. So, so if you perform poorly, you don't have self-worth, low self-worth. And if you perform great, you have high self-worth. It's not based any longer on you. It's now based upon someone else and what he's done that actually creates your value. And so this is our phrase we've been using all fall long, that God spells healing, even the healing of self-worth issues, C-O-V-E-N-A-N-T. And if we don't see the covenant that God has actually invited us into, we're never going to see what he's actually done for us, especially in this issue of self-worth. So we're going to take our Bibles, and we're going to see a, a summary verse. We're just looking at one verse today, uh, and then a couple of supporting verses, but one verse majorly today called Second uh, Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. So you can turn there in your Bibles, you can look on the screen or get the Bible app out on your iPhone or Android, device, whatever, and we'll, we're going to walk through this. I'm going to read it, and then we're going to walk through it very, very slowly to make sure that we've wrap, we're wrapping our minds around what this is actually saying. Are you with me? Is this making any sense? Is it just me that has struggled with self-worth issues? Hopefully not. If it is, I need this, if you don't, Okay. Maybe you've all arrived. I know you haven't, because I know you. (laughs) Here we go. He made him, again, I'm going to read through it, and then we're going to just break it down. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. One more time. He made him who knew no sin to be sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So again, we're just going to break it down. He made him. Let's just look at that real quick. He made him. So this is the father. He made him the son. So the plan of God from the beginning, and I don't mean the beginning like as in Genesis 3 when everything went to pot. I mean from the beginning, the beginning of all beginnings, God's plan was for Jesus to become our sin, even before there was even sin, to show how much he actually loves, to show how much he actually has grace towards us. So he, the Father, made Jesus. In the next little passage, who knew no sin? So we, it's impossible for us in our finite minds to really understand just how critical it was that Jesus actually have no sin. Do you understand that that's why he was born of a virgin? So so that the seed of man, which was tainted by sin, would not enter into the flesh of Jesus? He was born of a virgin so that there wouldn't be no sin in him. So he who literally knew no sin, he never sinned, not because he was just a goody-two-shoe, but because he was born of a virgin and his father was God himself. He knew no sin. If Jesus had known sin, then this would all be, we'd be fools for doing what we do here, for believing what we believe. He had to be a spotless, sinless sacrifice that the Old Testament altar system all prophesied about. So he, the Father, made Jesus him 
who knew no sin. And this next little phrase, it's rather new to me, quite honestly. It says, to be sin. You see, I used to always think that Jesus, as he hung there on the cross, he was sort of draped in our sin. You know, like a confetti or something, you know, silly string. It's all over him. And the wrath of God was poured out onto Jesus because all the sin was on Jesus. That's what I used to think. But it's only been recently, actually since reading the scriptures, like this scripture, that says, no, 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 it wasn't just on him. The Father made the Son to be sin. That's different, isn't it? For those of us who, who might have English you know, uh, class in our background, this is a, this is a state of verb. This is, this, this is a state of being. Jesus was sin. He became sin. I, I just want that to kind of sink in for a second. I want that to kind of feel uncomfortable for a moment. The fact that Jesus in all of his glory and all of his splendor, all of his righteousness, all of his perfection, all of his holiness actually became your sin. It wasn't just kind of placed on him. He became one with it in essence. Every filthy thought, and I've had my fair share, every envious action, every wicked thing that we have ever done or would ever do entered into him and he became it. I think we just kind of gloss over that a little bit too fast sometimes. Doesn't that kind of feel uncomfortable? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? Why would he become our sin? He, the Father, made Jesus to be sin. He didn't know his own. He didn't have his own, but he became our sin. And here's why. Anybody wonder why? Why would he do that? On our behalf. Your translation might just simply say for us. On our behalf. You see, God knows something that sometimes we don't really know, and that is that we could never do this on our our own. We could never become the righteousness of God by ourselves. And so God made the Son to be sin on our behalf, for us, because we can never do it on our own. So this is grace. This is scandalous. This is what, remember, the Apostle Paul and all the apostles were murdered for teaching that God loves you so much that he sent his Son to die for your sins so that you could be as righteous as Jesus. That that was... That was scandalous. Paul was whipped and beaten so many times because of this message. And sometimes we just roll it off our tongue and we don't really think about it. He actually became our sin for us on our behalf. Now, why would he become our sin on our behalf? And here's the second little line. So that. It's purpose. It's for this reason, you could think of it. So that, here's the reason, the plan of God from the beginning was that he would put the sin of man into Jesus, where Jesus became our sin, so that, for this purpose, here's the plan of God, so that we might become the righteousness of God. God's plan from the beginning for the sin of mankind whom he hadn't even created yet 
to be placed into his son so that we might become his righteousness. In other words, Jesus became what we were, sinful, wicked, cursed. Remember, this Old Testament says, cursed is any man who hangs on a tree. What was Jesus doing? He was hanging, nailed on a tree, cursed, but not for his own sin, on our behalf. He became what we were, vile, at his core, so that we could become what he is, righteous, at our core. That needs to sink in, church, because this isn't just some sort of, you know, literary, flowery statement that Paul just happened to write down and we're reading it 2,000 years later. This is the gospel, that he did this so that we actually become the righteousness of God. The King James, anybody reading a King James out here? I love how the King James puts this. It says, so that we might be made the righteousness of God. It's such this beautiful juxtaposition. God made Jesus sin so that God makes you righteous. Isn't that cool? We read this word become in this translation, and it sounds, it's like a progressive, you know, we're becoming righteous. No, no. For all of our Greek geeks out there, this is aorist tense, which means it's past tense. It happened once, not continuously. It's past tense. He became what we were so that we could become what he is. One other thing I want to mention on this real quick is where it says might become, we can read that and we can get confused thinking that's like uncertainty. Like, hey, are you going to the party tonight? I don't know. I might be coming. You see that? I might not. And so we could read this with our, our, our context and we think, okay, well, it's kind of uncertainty. He became what we were so that we might become what he is, but we might not. You see that? But that's actually the complete opposite of the construction that Paul actually constructs this sentence with. It's, it, he actually constructs it in a way to remove any and all doubt that we actually become what he is. Let me give you an illustration. If I were to say to you, hey, Rachel, I, I, I went into Mudhouse so that I might get a cup of coffee. Well, if you see me walking out of Mudhouse, what can you assume? That I've got a cup of coffee. But I said might. You see that? It's just English. I walked into Mudhouse so that I might get a cup of coffee. Well, if I walked in and I've walked out, then I've got a cup of coffee. Well, that's the same thing that's going on here. He became our sin so that we might become his righteousness. Well, the question is, did he become our sin? Well, I think in order for us to be orthodox, we'd have to say, yes, he became our sin. So what's the result? The result is you have become his righteousness. Now, is this for anybody and everybody? Is this, is this for believers and unbelievers alike, that unbelievers have become his righteousness? Well, let's keep reading. So that we might become the righteousness of God in him. So, so where is this righteousness found? It's found in him. Meaning we have to be in him in order to have this righteousness. In order to not just have the righteousness, but in order to be righteous. It's not just what we have or possess. 
Jesus didn't have our sins. He became our sins. So we don't just have his righteousness. You are righteous. You are righteous if you are in him. Well, how do we get in him? Well, John chapter 1 says it very plainly. It's up on the board. It's also in your Bible notes. I think verse 12 says that as many as received him to them, that is the ones who received him, I think it's up there. There it is. But as many as received him to them, them who received him, he gave the right to become children of God. I don't have time to get in this, but a very false teaching is that every single person in the world is a child of God. That's not true. It's only those who receive him are children of God. So as many as receive him, to them he gave the right to become sons of God, children of God, even to those who believe in his name, born not of the flesh, the will of man, but born of God. That's how we get in him. That's how we become righteous. Not just right standing, not just our name with a little, you know, in another category in heaven, but you actually become righteous. When I share this, this amazing news with somebody, one of the questions that I get a lot is, okay, I know that I become righteous by believing in Jesus, but, but how does that happen? What, what, what's, what's, what's happening behind the stage, you know, backstage access? What actually happens so that I become righteous? And if you've been coming to Life Journey for a while, you know that we talk about this all the time, and maybe you've just been coming for a little bit, and you say, I hear you say that we're holy, that we're righteous, that we're, that we're beloved, but but how does that actually work? Because all I see is this flesh, and all I see a lot of times, most of the times, is the sin that comes out of this flesh. Well, let's take a couple of minutes that we have left and answer that. Let's go to the beginning. Genesis chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. In the day when God created man, God made man in the likeness of God. We we've all are probably familiar with that. God made man in his image. He created them male and female, Adam and Eve, and he blessed them and named them man or, or mankind in the day in which they were created. So we all know that God created Adam and Eve in the image of God. We all know that. We've heard that since we were little, if you went to church when you were little. If you haven't, well, now you've heard it. We were created in the image of God. But something happened in Genesis chapter 3 that messed that up. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17 says that in it, the moment at which you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely what? Die. And in chapter 3, what do we have? Adam and Eve eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that day they died. Not physically, but spiritually. Now they died physically years later, which they weren't designed to do. They were designed to live forever, but they died because sin entered into them. Now look at this. The Bible says, verse 3, that no longer is the children of man created in the image of God. It says that when Adam had lived 130 years old, he became the father of the son in his own likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So the children of Adam were no longer created in the image of God, were they? They're created in the image of 
Adam, physically alive, but spiritually what? Dead. And some of us just now went like, what? I've never heard that before. Genesis 5. We, at our physical birth, were not created in the image of God. We were created in the image of Adam, physically alive, spiritually dead. And listen, church, this is why the new covenant and the new creation is so important, because the first covenant and the first creation failed. And God said shortly thereafter, in fact, in Ezekiel, about a thousand or some years later, he says that the day is going to come when I will put a brand new spirit in them, a brand new heart within them. I will actually cut out that dead stony heart, and I will put in them a heart that's alive. You see, that's the new covenant. That's the new creation. God knew that, at, that when Adam and Eve came, that, that when they sinned, that mankind was cursed and doomed because of sin. But there had to be something that happened later, namely this new covenant, to actually undo all of what was done. And so what the way God promised this would happen here in Ezekiel is that there would be a cutting away. You see that? I will remove the heart of stone. I'm going to cut it out, and I'm going to give you a new heart, a new human spirit. So from the very beginning, God promised that he was going to undo this curse that had been brought into mankind. Anybody remember Abraham? He had many sons, right? Many sons had father Abraham, right? We can do the, the dance and the jig if you want, you know, to remind you of this guy, Abraham. Well, Abraham was given a lot of promises by God, and Abraham believed the promises, and he was credited as righteous. Well, one of the promises that God gave to Abraham was that Abraham would have a son. And if you remember, Abraham and his wife, Sarah, were both very old, and Sarah's womb was actually dead. And so it was impossible for them to have a child. So Abraham and Sarah, knowing more than God knows, said, hey, how about you go in and enter into Hagar, the slave woman from Egypt, and use her flesh to bring about the promise of God? Well, that happened. Genesis 16, you can read about it. Ishmael is born. And at the end of Genesis 16, you turn the page, and it's Genesis 17. And the very next thing that God does is he tells Abraham, no, son, this is not the way this is going to work. Your, you and your flesh are not going to bring about my promises. Your, your flesh is not going to get the glory. My, I and I alone am going to get the glory for this stuff. And so you can read about it in Genesis 17, right after Ishmael was born. God told Abraham, hey, listen, go and get yourself a flint knife, and you're actually going to cut off a piece of the flesh that you have put your hope in. We call that circumcision. This is where circumcision actually started in the Old Testament. And so every single time that Abraham used the restroom, every time he was intimate with his wife, every time the wind blew and his skirt kind of flew up, he was reminded that his flesh would never bring about the glory of God's promises. You see that? And we don't have time to recount all of Israel's history, but every time they would go like into Jericho, they had a circumcision party beforehand in Gilgal so that the flesh of the Israelites would never glory in the victory that was already the Lord's. Well, if we fast forward into the new covenant, we say, what's, that, what's the big point about all that? In the new covenant, it's not just a little bit of our flesh that has been cut away. Colossians chapter 2 says that in the new covenant, the entirety of your flesh has been cut away 
from your inner man. Read it with me right here in Colossians 2. It says, in him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands. Meaning, we're not talking about a doctor and your little boy, baby boy on the day before you come home from the hospital. We're not talking about a 90-year-old man with a flint stone. We're talking about something spiritual made without hands. It says, in the removal of the body, the whole body, not just a piece, but the whole body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. What this means is that the entire body has been actually cut away from your inner man. And what did God do with the old inner man? Well, Ezekiel says that he cut it out. Well, here it says that it was buried with him in baptism. Elsewhere, Paul says that it was crucified with Christ. So God has cut out that old inner man, and he actually crucified it with Christ and buried it with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through the working uh, through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and sins, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. Look, I say this with great love, but man, this is one of the most... Most of us, myself included, are just simply ignorant of this truth, that there's actually been a cutting away most of us think that we're like Abraham, where Abraham was credited with righteousness. I don't know if he actually said this, but Martin Luther is credited as saying that we <clears throat> are dung covered with the righteous snow of Jesus. And that sounds very humble. That sounds very, you know, religious. We're dung. That's who we really are, covered with the snow of Jesus's righteousness. Well, if that's the case, and, and probably most of us have that understanding. I know I did for most of my life. But if that's the case, that we are simply dung, that's our true value, covered with the righteousness of Jesus, the snow-covered dung, then someone forgot to inform the apostles. Because the apostles, you know, Paul, he's the one who says that we now have a new what? Creation in us. We are actually new creations. Someone forgot to tell uh, the apostle John, who says that we've been born from God above. And that which is born of God does not sin. We, someone forgot to tell Peter because Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, says that we have become partakers of the divine what? Nature, origin. Our origin is now Jesus. You know, if we're just snow-covered dung, then, then someone forgot to tell Ezekiel. We just read Ezekiel saying that the old heart is getting cut away and a whole new heart is being put in. In other words, if, if we're nothing more than snow, pretty snow-covered dung, then the Scriptures have it all wrong. I'm not a very smart man, as you know. No amens. But I'm not dumb enough to argue with the clarity of the Scriptures. If something that I've always believed because I've always been taught is at odds with what the Scriptures are clearly saying, I'm just not dumb enough to say, to heck with the Scriptures, I'm going to go with what I've always believed. And what the Scriptures are saying is that you are not snow-covered dung. What the Scriptures are saying is that the dung that you once were, if we continue that, 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 that allegory, was cut out. It was crucified with Jesus. It actually became Jesus. Jesus became that. And he was crucified on your behalf so that you might become righteous. And not just any old righteousness, but the very righteousness of God. 
in Christ Jesus. We have a simple illustration here. You've seen this before if you've been coming to Life Journey for a while. If you're newer, this might be new for you. <clears throat> but it's very helpful. I like illustrations because, you know, I'm visual at, at heart. And so here is a, a, a canister that represents uh, me, the, the, the body, my flesh. This, this blue ribbon that's intertwined all around this, let's let that represent sin. And when Adam and Eve sinned, sin, like a parasite, entered into Adam and Eve, and it became one with them. In fact, the inner man, which is inside, good place for the inner man to be, Lou, is as sin-ridden as the outer man. You see how it's all connected? It's all one. It's joined. There's no separation between the inner man and the outer man. The inner man is as filthy and dead and riddled with sin as the outer man. And here's what Ezekiel has prophesied. And here's what Jesus has said has come to pass in the new covenant. And here's what Paul is now teaching, that when we believe in him, we have been circumcised, cut away. Not, not just a little bit of the flesh, but the entire body of the flesh has been a cut away from our human spirit. And what happened with this old human spirit, this thing that we got from Adam? Well, uh, about half my life ago, when I was in my teenage years, this guy, the old me, the me that I was born with, was crucified with Christ. And it was buried with Christ. And what was raised? A whole new what? A whole new creation. And what does Paul say this creation is? What does Paul say you are at your core, your new human spirit? Paul says that you are now created in the true image of God, in true holiness and true righteousness. Joined no longer to the flesh, there's been a cutting away. Joined now to Jesus himself. And this treasure of who we now are, guess what? It lives inside of this weak earthen vessel, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. So that the power is truly seen to be of God and not of us. So how much sin is interwoven into who you now are? How much sin is in this guy? This is an easy math question. Zero, zip, zilch, not a nothing. Where is sin? Is there sin in your mortal bodies? You better believe it. It's in mine at least. But what relationship does this, who you now are, have with sin? Are you joined to it? Is it your master? Does it have dominion over you? Is it able to kill you? That's the dominion of, of sin. That's the power of sin. No. It is quarantined to the flesh. Sin no longer is who you are. It's who you once were, but it's no longer who you are. Our journey marker this morning, our band can come on up is actually a quote out of our book this week. It's this, in the new creation, I mean, the new covenant, which new creation kind of goes hand in hand. In the new covenant, which we are now in, if you believe in Jesus, you are worth Jesus. And I know what you're thinking. It's like, ah, oh, that just sounds kind of, you know, sacrilegious a little bit, doesn't it? I'm worth Jesus? He who knew no sin became sin 
so that you might become his righteousness. So if you've read the book already for chapter 7, you already know this illustration. But if you were, you know, those old time scales, you know, where you had weight on this side and weight on this side to figure out, okay, I'm going to put grain on this side and I'll put, you know, some weight on this side to see how much we owe for our grain. If you were to put the righteousness of Jesus on this side of the scale and you were to put your new creation, your, you, who you now are on this side of the scale, which has been, remember, created out of and with the righteousness of Jesus, what happens to this scale? Well, we all think naturally, oh, what well, man, Jesus, he is, his value is so much more than ours. Well, all I'm saying, that might sound humble, that might sound religious, all I'm saying is that's not what Paul taught. That's not the scriptures. Paul says, you have been created new with the very same righteousness of Jesus. You are worth Jesus. Now, before we walk out this room with this huge inflated head, let's realize all of this is by what? Grace. Grace. God's grace. And I can imagine, because I have them, the, the, the opposition, the argument, I don't deserve that. That's too good to be true. Hey, look, no argument for me on that. We don't deserve it. That's why it's called grace. The only thing we deserve is death because of sin. But listen, if this is what the God of the universe has declared and revealed it to the apostles, and we now read about it 2,000 years later, who are we, let's be honest, who are we to argue with God about this? If God says that Jesus actually became our sin so that we would become Jesus' righteousness, who are you, honestly, to argue with him about that? Do you know more than God? Do, do, Do you know something he doesn't know? Have you thought this through a little bit more than he has? He has made you righteous, as righteous as Jesus. However righteous Jesus is, that's how righteous you are. Because it's his righteousness that you've been created with. You've been cut away from the flesh, cut away from the sin that lives in the flesh, and your new human spirit is holy, Righteous, clean, glorious, eternal, spotless, wrinkle-free. You don't have to iron it. And it's as sinless, the new man, as sinless as Jesus is. This is your worth. This is who you are. Now, does that mean that sin is not still alive in your flesh? Hang out with me for a day. You'll know that sin is still alive in the flesh. But that's not who I am anymore. You see that? I've been cut away from it. So when the temptations to sin come, and they come over and over and over, I now, with with the reality of the Scriptures, I can now say that temptation, that sinful, wicked thought, that's not me. That's not coming from me. That's what I once was, but I was crucified with Christ, and yet it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Look, sin is alive in our flesh. 
but it's not who you are. You've been cut away. If we determine our worth by external things in our world, we will, like the survey from the University of Michigan says, we'll go crazy. We will go crazy. We will go crazy. Isn't it about time that we, the bride of Christ, start determining, determining our worth no longer by what we do or don't do, but by what he has done, by who he is and who we now are in him? Doesn't that make so much more sense? That's where healing will come. Let's stand. Hopefully this morning has made some sense. I know we're all over the place in Scripture, but hopefully it makes some sense. If you are struggling with your value, I'm just saying let's look at who, what, what your true value is, no longer on what the world says about us, but what the God of the universe says about us. Maybe you've come this morning and you don't believe in Jesus. Uh, man, it's only those who receive him who have this life. It's only those who receive him who've been made righteous. So let me just encourage you to receive him, to believe him in what he's done. Father, as we prepare to sing a song about how wonderful you are and, and what you've done, and as we celebrate this amazing new that we've, news that we've died to sin and we're alive to God, Father, help that to become real. I know that this morning is is, is Christianity 101. It's very basic, and I, and, and I thank the folk who have, who have endured hearing the basics again and again. But, but, Father, there are many in this room who, like myself, for so many years was just ignorant of the truth of what you've actually done. And I just pray, Father, that you'd open our eyes to see the glory and the grandeur of the finished work of Christ that he became what we were, sin, so that we might become what he is, righteous. Thank you. Hallelujah. What a Savior. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you again for listening to today's podcast of the teaching at Life Journey Church in Crozet, Virginia. We'd love to hear from you. If God is doing something special in your life, let us know by sending an email to info at lifejourneyva.com. Feel free to pass today's teaching on to any friends and family that you'd like, but please don't change any of it or charge for it. This podcast is made available for free as a ministry of Life Journey Church. If you would like to support the proclamation of the gospel of the grace of God, you can make a donation now on our website, lifejourneyva.com. Have a great day.